You want me to go with you to see a patient? That's right. Better get a move on. It's a bit of a drive. We need to get there before daybreak. Leonard, I've never done this sort of thing before. Well, precisely. If you're going to be a healer, it's not enough to read books and learn allegorical stories. You need to get your feet wet. Get some clinical experience under your belt. I just don't know if I'm ready for this yet. Ed, no one is ever ready. Lee, when do you think our formative era begins as human beings? Hmm. Maybe like late teenage years. That's like high school time is definitely whenever I sort of came into myself as a as like an artist uh, or just like made my taste in art, I guess, was in, in high school. Really? You got such an early start than, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> than me. I would say that a person's formative era is probably like their 20s hmm. because that's the period of your life that's dominated by what ifs and whatnots. And yeah. it's the time of our life where we're cast out of our collective communities, like we're no longer in school or in college, and we're learning what like our first love is, how our first job operates. We're just in this unique state of mind of setting off and learning what being independent truly means. And I think that's like something that like Ed is going through now, because Ed was 18 at the start of the series. But now he's in his early 20s and Leonard is trying to lead him into, you know, the first footsteps out of his nest, which is why he offers him a pair of boots. Yeah. At the end of that soundbite, he extends a pair of boots sort of uh, front into the frame. Um, the first steps in this adult adulthood life. That makes a lot of sense, though. You're actually right, I think, with the uh, formative years being sort of in your young adult 20s. Lots of uh, lots of growth, I think, happens then. I guess, yeah, we we've always been talking about what is Ed's path as a as a human, as an adult, I guess. With season five, it feels like that that premiere episode, Three Doctors introduces Ed as a potentially as a shaman, and this episode definitely continues down that path. We just got the last episode, Rosebud, which was more focused on the filmmaker side of Ed, though, of course, you know, it kind of mingles together with healer and shaman in that episode. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, I guess we could just go ahead and say this is a very Ed-centric episode. Oh, yeah, definitely <laughs> like part two of Ed. So like like you mentioned, like last week's episode, Rosebud, was kind of him deciding to embark on the path. And in this episode, it's him traveling the path mm. and like seeing what happens in it. Right, definitely. Well, Charles, what is it that we're talking about? We're talking about Ed, but I mean the bigger picture. Well, what's going on okay. here? Okay, <laughs> yeah, got it. So the bigger picture is that we are the Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Charles, and I'm always joined here with my co-host, Lee. My name is Lee, and I've seen Northern Exposure, this series that we're talking about, 1990 CBS series. I've seen this show a number of times. In fact, I'll throw it back to my formative years in high school. That's when I saw Northern <laughs> Exposure. I, I do think it really shaped me throughout my life, you know, having seen it when I was that age. So I've seen this show a number of times. Charles, this is your first time watching each episode. Uh, we're in season five now, so you've got a grip of the, you've got the idea. You know what's going on. And while each episode may surprise you, you're not completely a fish out of water, which is sort of the the next element of the, the, the podcast structure is at the end of our 
discussion, Charles, after we discuss this episode, we're going to bring on a guest, someone who has never seen a single episode of Northern Exposure and get their fish out of water opinion. Does this episode stand up on its own? What's it like now, 30 years later, um, watching this show? Just general thoughts. Um, and at the same time, we're expanding the reach of Northern Exposure because it's sort of a forgotten show. It's never been available for streaming. And uh, this way, we introduce the show to one person at a time with each episode. And uh, I, I just did a lot of talking, but I'll go ahead and run down the credits for this episode because that's, that's generally what happens next. <laughs> this episode is called Heal Thyself. It's the eighth episode in season five, directed by Michael Cattleman. This is his final episode directing Northern Exposure. His previous credits uh, as a director were, let's see, going backwards from here, Gross Point 48230, Midnight Sun, It Happened in Juno, Democracy in America, and Get Real. The writers for this episode, Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, returning. And finally, the air date was November 15th, 1993. Oh, wow. He directed Gross Point 90. 98210. Did I say that right? <laughs> I always get the zip code mixed up. I have it in front of me, so I'll tell you it's 48230. 48230. That is one of my favorite episodes. I am surprised he directed that. Though I'm not saying like this episode was like particularly bad. I was just surprised. Yeah, that's a good one. That's like, you know, the direction. Um as as well as it happened in Juno. You know, thinking about it, those two episodes are very similar. Gross point and it happened in Juno, because uh they both featured Joel and Maggie leaving Sicily and like sort of somehow going on a trip together, you know, and in, in a different, they're, they're very different, but they're very similar too. same director. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Curious. Okay. So this episode starts out with that soundbite, you know, Leonard comes to wake up Ed and what you just heard, Ed's going to sort of get a sneak peek shadowing as a shaman underneath Leonard. I did want to mention though before the scene actually happens, the very first thing we see is like lush, dense woods, very green with sort of pan flute music playing, some jungle drums going on. There's like some crossfading and there's like an, an owl, a close up on an owl, a lake at night with a full moon. And then uh, we fade to Ed, who's waking up like he's asleep in his cabin. Um I forgot about that until I went back and pulled the soundbite. But yeah, that's how the episode starts. I wonder why, you know, I guess we need to know that Ed is being woken up in the middle of the night. But I don't think this uh, sequence suggests a dream. Maybe it does. Uh, I don't think it really ties into the rest of the episode. But does it? do you remember that opening there? Yeah, a little bit. I, I wouldn't say that. I think it's a dream. I, I would say the light. Yeah. I would say the light. You're right. It, it's most definitely a thing to show us that like it's deep at night. Leonard is coming in to wake him up. This seems to happen a lot from season five. Is it just my imagination to do a lot of characters start off their episode with the door Waking being opened or opening the door? It's a good way to start, you know? Um, I mean like the, you know, how do you start an episode? Um, yeah, that is uh that is interesting. We got to keep, I think we should keep tabs of that now. Well, what if it happens every episode, then it's going to get annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you might be right on that. Uh, yeah, I guess it's a good starting point. Yeah. So which one should we stick with then? Because it's acknowledged, or at least we acknowledge that Ed's going to be the main plot line, but there is a Shelly Holling plot line, a Maggie plot line, and I think that's actually it. I think it's just those two other plot lines. So three in total. 
Um, let's save Ed for the last. So which one do you want to go with? Let's do Maggie's storyline. Maggie's? Let's do that first. All right, let's go with her first. All right, so starting off with Maggie, we see that she is in the laundromat again. That seems to be something yeah. that's recurring <laughs> throughout all of season five. Almost and it finally pays now, off. Right? <laughs> oh, go ahead. Yeah, it finally pays off. I was wondering why they kept doing that. But <laughs> yeah, so the, I mean, spoilers, she, she's going to get her own laundry, you know, machine, laundromat. Yeah, yeah laundry, washing machine and dryer right here. But what's going on in this scene is that Maggie is doing laundry with Chris and Marilyn, and she's kind of like just talking to them about the local town gossip. She's saying like, hey, uh, these two individuals, Jack and who's the other individual? Mm, I didn't write down any of the names, but they are like naming um, they are naming the townsfolk. I didn't really follow like I didn't take notes on the storyline of what the gossip is. I just, you know, just noted that they were gossiping, but it sounds like some uh, some relationship drama between between various townsfolk. Yeah. Oh, it's Mindy. Mindy. So Mindy and Jack, they're talking about them and she's saying like how they're getting to a tussle and how they might be leaving one another. And the thing that I wanted to point out in this scene is that the laundry machines that they're using are pea green. They're like this uh, pea mm. soup greenish, kind of a kind of disgusting looking color, honestly, <laughs> for a washing machine. Doesn't doesn't make you think of cleanliness. Which, you know, Maggie complains about by the end of the scene. She says something like, this place is just gross. Your clothes always end up dirtier when you leave. She's like pulling out, looks like moss or something. I think it's just like uh, lint or I don't know what it is. She's pulling out some green fuzzy stuff uh, that looks kind of damp (laughs) from all of the, from the washer or something. I I also want to point out that we get an exterior wide shot of the laundromat because before We've always seen them like walking around with laundry baskets in this season. Only this season. Uh, they walk around with laundry baskets. We do get a scene where they're inside the laundromat, though I don't think we've ever seen the exterior yet. Uh, but we see it in a clear wide shot with a with a sign out front that says Sicily Laundromat. So yeah, this is, you know, they're really not gonna, they're really not letting go of the laundromat. They're sticking with, I guess they, you know, they already built the set. They're like, we gotta get Got to keep this up. <laughs> well, I am impressed because they finally have something to say about it. Right. And I think right, this okay. is like one of the uh, climactic statements that they try to say about the laundry machine in this next scene, which is going to feature Chris in Maggie. Chris is installing a washing machine and dryer for her. And the shot starts off in a very interesting composition because Chris is on the left side. He's framed between the washer and the frame of the door Mm -hmm. and Maggie is on the other side. She's on the right side of the dryer. So you're having a divide between them, this washer that's going to be separating Chris and Maggie. And that goes along with what Chris is going to be talking about in this section, which is where he's saying like, you know, people used to wash themselves by the Creek. It was like (laughs) a community event. And now pretty soon we're all going to have these things within our own homes. We won't have to go outside to go buy groceries or see movies. We can just be in our own secluded place. We don't have to leave our boundaries in order to get our daily quota of um, of activities. Chris uh, calling it back in 93, snuggle up to your fiber optics baby and bliss out, is what he says. I, I think there, there are a lot, I guess it's a slippery slope is what he's, what he's, um, Trying, trying to point out. I think there's a lot 
there are things that are much worse to uh, our sense of community than just having a washing machine in your house. But I, I get the <laughs> the slippery slope he's trying to set up here. I've got a <laughs> I've got a whole soundbite here I could play for for this. It's a pretty great piece of writing. Mm, smells new, like a new car. Look, it's so shiny. It makes me feel uh, elegant. That's the self-affirming power of a new toy. That's the life support system of the whole capitalist animal. Huh? I mean, when you think about it, the whole material gratification angle is just the tip of the iceberg. These babies here embody the whole wolf and warp of human development. A wash and dryer. Ever since the Pleistocene era, Homo erectus has been flocking it down to the local creek to beat their first skivvies against rocks, right? Well, what's a laundromat except the same old creek, but with a cheap tin roof over it, huh? Yeah, so? But this, this is progress. I mean, these two iron boxes, we've gone from communal suds to private spin cycle. We're on our total blitzkrieg towards isolation. You think? Listen to me, the day's coming, and it ain't gonna be long when you ain't even gonna have to leave your living room. No more schools, no more bodegas, no more tabernacles, no more cineplexes, all right? You're gonna snuggle up to your fiber optics, baby, and bliss out. I mean, yeah, if Chris only also was predicting a, a global pandemic, then, you know, it, that I think even exaggerated <laughs> further the idea of, you know, being at home 24-7. I mean, we had to quarantine, you know, we during that time, I feel like I, I was reading a lot of articles and hearing uh, on the radio just things about how people are sort of like upgrading their homes because it's now their office and people are spending so much more time in their houses that, you know, we're doing these kind of things like leaving the cinemas and, and churches behind and kind of doing it all from home now. That is actually really interesting in a different way because I just realized that for the tax year of 2021, a large portion of it, and 2020 as well, the IRS is going to actually have a lot of self-employment people and they're going to be filing and saying like, oh, like this uh, was my home office. I want this to be tax deductible. And I know that you have to measure yeah. like a certain square foot of your room and all that. They're going to be getting a lot more of that. So that's going to be – I wonder how they're going to handle it. They're going to change a little bit of the tax code to accommodate all of these people so they don't have to go through such – uh, a hassle to file their taxes. I mean, probably or not. They're, they're just going gonna... to make it as hard as possible <laughs> to file your taxes. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> but I think that, so Chris is not wrong and I don't want to take away anything from what he is saying, but I also want to say that this seems like something that's very easy to predict mm. because <laughs> I, it feels like it's something that always happened since like the Greco-Roman times whenever the past generation would be like, holy crap, the new generation, they are out of their minds. They are not like reading the stone tablets anymore that we have been pumping out. They are just on that newfangled printing press. Like what? What is going on? And it, it just keeps going on and on. Now, I know that Chris is talking about isolation yeah. uh, more so than like the rapid development of technology. But he still made a good guess in the 90s whenever like the internet was still Definitely not what it is now. It was it was in its infancy. But I think that like if you said that now, everyone would roll their eyes. Everyone would be like, well, yeah, like we get it. <laughs> like no one is out here being like, holy crap, technology is really doing a number on us. <laughs> but I think that like par for the course, 
him saying this in like night, you know, the early nineties. Uh, I, I think that Chris did a great job of predicting it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, his whole, the whole crux of his uh, argument is the idea of going from community to the individual to isolation, well, you know, which community to individual, which makes you feel isolated. Um, but that's definitely our culture here in the West, maybe globally now in a lot of uh, cultures, you know, we're moving away from uh, community and becoming more individual. But um, yeah, I mean, maybe it all, I don't know if it all starts with the washer and dryer, but you know, that's definitely an element in what's happening with this shift in, uh, in culture. But yeah, that's kind of what this storyline is about. We still got a lot to explore here. So let's move to the next sequence with Maggie, which would be, I want to say it's just her. Um, she's got, you know, she's got her laundry machine installed now from that last scene and she's doing laundry at home and um, she's just like sitting on her couch. You know, she can relax. Uh, she kind of like twiddles with some, um, some little decoration on her uh on her table and then grabs the phone and immediately dials Ruthann. Yeah. Well, it turns out you can't replace human connection right there because <laughs> she just wants to talk with Ruthann. And uh, it's actually kind of neat because when she's sitting on the couch, there's like a shot of a um, an airplane. It's like casting bronze. Oh, that's the say. thing that she's playing with. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like curious that she's playing with an airplane, which is like usually a symbol of like freedom and departing and leaving behind things that uh are you know remaining on the ground yeah there's like an imagery of saying goodbye which is kind of what's happening with the technology and the next phase that she's going into but yeah she's talking with ruthann and in ruthann's door there's a lot of stuff going on joel's wanting to get a piece (laughs) for a dish he's trying to cook a man is trying to settle out what type of size that he needs what i thought was really interesting is that again there's another theme of boundaries being explored in the composition of the shot Mm. because ruthann is on the left side where the bar is and then there's like the bar the countertop that separates her from all the other customers right there that are trying to hassle her and then there's also like some fishing poles Mm -hmm. in between in the middle that also creates um another like divide between individuals i don't know if that's intentional or not for this particular scene but i thought it was just something very interesting to note yeah it definitely balances the frame at the very least but i think you're not wrong because uh she occupies the left of the frame and it's almost at a certain point because you said it's joel and then walt later comes in and then at a certain point they're both there so they're like kind of ganging up on her on the right side and so it's (laughs) kind of like she's not necessarily in a bubble, but she's behind the counter, kind of separated from them. And they're kind of like ganging up on the other side and things are accumulating outside of this phone call that she needs to uh, pay attention to. I did want to also chime in on the whole bronze sculpture of the um, airplane. I didn't I didn't really make any sort of um, thematic connection with that, but I think you're spot on. And I just wanted to also say with that, Um, maybe this is supposed to illustrate like the freedom that she has now to wash her clothes in the freedom and comfort of her own home. And she doesn't have to, you know, she's not forced to wash her clothes in these grimy, uh, laundry machines at the laundromat that apparently Maurice owns. Um, so she's got this freedom, but the reality of it is it's just kind of boring. You know, she's playing with this toy. It's like not as beautiful as you might think. You know, at, at the end of the day, she's just very bored uh, twirling the 
whatever that is on on the plane toy or bronze statue. Right, right. But for now, uh, what happens with Maggie next? Yeah, so Maggie's going to be walking down the street with Marilyn. She's trying to convince her to be like, hey, I got this new fancy laundry machine. Maybe you and Chris could head down here. Uh, we could, you know, have a little shindig. And we could try to replicate what the community aspect of that laundromat was. And Marilyn replies back saying like, no, I, I like that place. You know, it, it's got a certain smell. It's got these magazines. It's It feels familiar. And I want to be where I'm familiar. What I thought was really interesting, though, in this scene is, again, I'm going to go back into the theme of lines going through this. When they're having this walk and talk and they're going down the screen, they pass by a lot of telephone poles, pillars, just things that divide them as they keep passing through it. They serve to divide Marilyn and Maggie. And that's a a visual symbolization, at least in my opinion, of what this washing machine is doing to Maggie. Definitely, yeah. It's cutting her off from the circle uh, at the beginning of her her plot line, this, uh, this social circle that she has here in the laundromat. Though I want to go on the record and say I think Maggie's invitation or Maggie's idea to have everyone gather because she's she says she intends to also invite Chris and others too. I think that's great. Like come have a little laundry party at Maggie's house. Of course, it's uh, a whole different beast than going to the laundromat and the community aspect of that. But I mean, you can still have like, a, um, what's the word? Uh, they actually, I learned this from another episode of Northern Exposure where I think Joel says, or, or Ed says global community when they talk about our tribe, but just the idea that like, we're all connected now closer, but also in, in much smaller, uh, well, I guess before this is a, this is a terrible example. Cause I think what global community means is the opposite of like small tribes. That would be a small group. Uh, whereas global community is like now we're interacting with the whole world because of the internet, yada, yada. Um, I'm gone off on this tangent now, but all I want to say is I think this idea that Maggie having a small circle of friends over to her house to do laundry, is a good idea. Um, and it's a bummer that Marilyn declines, but I think her final reasoning that she lists for not wanting to go do laundry at Maggie's house is she says the laundromat is close to the office. It's convenient. So... I mean, yeah, you can't argue with that. Not going to make you drive all the way to my house to do your laundry, but um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it's very useful to have a third-party location. Just be like the place where you hang out. Whereas if you go to Maggie's to go do laundries, it's still Maggie's place. This isn't like a, a neutral ground where everyone can meet up. I think that might be playing into it as well. Mm, okay. Well, let's see. The next scene that we have with Maggie and the laundry machine is that she's got a repairman over to fix the laundry machine. Apparently, the repairman says that the drive belt broke uh, and Maggie is convincing herself almost to get rid of the machine. She's like, you know what? I just want to get I want to get this over with. Like, it's already breaking. He's like, no, it's not a problem. It's just the drive belt. It's a really quick, easy fix. Be done in 10 minutes. But she's almost convinced herself now that she'd rather not have it. So she uses this as uh, as a good enough excuse to just, you know, be rid of it now. Yeah. Uh, essentially, she's just giving herself a way out of having the washing machine so that she can go back to being with other people. And again, what's really interesting about this scene, it's got to be intentional in my opinion, is that Maggie never really crosses the divide of where the washing machine is on the left side of the screen, where she is on the right side of the screen. 
So like the repairman is on the bottom of the floor and he is on the left side of the screen trying to fix and diagnose the problems. And Maggie is on the right side and she never crosses the boundary between her and the washing machine. It's always in the frame to the left of her right there. And at least to me, I think it's intentional. It's a possibility that there's like a lot of explanations going into this. Let's say like, oh, it's going to break up the composition of the shot if she goes too much in this way and all that. But I think it's a nice symbolic way of saying like she is keeping her distance from this piece of technology and yeah. she's setting up clear lines. Yeah, even apart from the composition, which is, as you explain, like she never crosses that or she never approaches it. Just the body language as well, as you're saying, she's sort of keeping distance from it. I think, yeah, she because she's, you know, she's almost looking over the repairman because the repairman's back is to her as he's repairing it. She's sort of a spectator removed from this scene. Uh, so yeah, I definitely think you're right. It has, has that uh, sense of her keeping her distance here. And, you know, she's saying, uh, ultimately the resolution of this is she's saying goodbye to the machine. It's going away. Um, and she returns to the laundromat in the next scene and is gossiping. And uh, Maurice is there. And clearly the machines haven't gotten any better. Actually, it like ruined, one of the washing machines ruined Maggie's dress. And, um, well, that's a bummer, but the scene ends with uh, the final note of, I think Marilyn says, it's good to have you back, Maggie. But I mean, like, okay, call me whatever the opposite of old fashioned is. I I think <laughs> that Maggie, I think that her solution of getting her own laundry machine is a good solution. Like those laundry machines, you know, while community is what they're serving, they're not doing their proper function. They're in fact destroying clothes. Uh, she's dissatisfied with the conditions at this laundromat. So she's trying to improve that for herself. And the trade-off is she's going to lose her friends and her community. But I don't know I, I, if she could. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we got to use the argument that this is a neutral location, third-party neutral location where people can just meet up. I guess it is a little different if she just invites everyone to her house and maybe it's a little too far to drive there. So yeah, what what can you do, man? Yeah, no, I mean, I totally understand <laughs> you. For like, uh, I mean, we got to keep in mind, this was like in the you know, early 90s and they were trying to, they were trying to make a bold statement and draw a line in the sand. Whereas nowadays, like, yeah, like I've told this story before where I was doing laundry as a freshman. I had to like go across <laughs> like the the courtyard and do all that at like 2 a.m. because it was too many people using it during the day. Like, no, it's like much better to have your own laundry <laughs> machine. I didn't lose out any social interaction at 2 a.m. Like it was, uh, it's just more convenient. So I, I totally get where you're coming from. I'm trying to find some sort of gray area because it's not just black and white here. I'm trying to make some sort of statement that's like, you know, you can still have community, but focus it finer to like, you you have the this this new technology gives you choice which we that's a whole other argument we could say choice could be good or bad but the choice is now yours to do your laundry on your own time and i'm also trying to say like she can choose which friends she wants to bring into her circle and form as a community but actually i guess in this case that's not true because the whole idea of having this laundromat as a as you said like as a neutral location uh, that is a big part of it. I think I think if Maggie wanted this 
choice and freedom, she would have to start her own laundromat or I don't know, see if she could like buy it out from Maurice and, you know, change the, uh, the management here. Something's clearly wrong with this laundromat here. Yeah. It's, uh, it's strange that they just accept it. They're just like, yeah, it's fine. That's uh, <laughs> good to have you back. Bar for the course. <laughs> well, I guess the positive look at it is like, you know, it may, it may not be the most ideal laundry machine, but at least you got your friends and that's like what's important. But yeah, I mean, like, please let Maggie wash her clothes without destroying them. Like, I, I want to see a storyline where Maggie can wash her clothes and not have them get destroyed. All right, that brings us to the next plot line, which is going to be between Holly and Shelly, with a little bit of Joel dabbed and mixed into there. So their first scene together is going to be them at a birthing class, I want to say. it's uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something being taught by Joel, where he's... Uh, Talking about the stages of pregnancy and birth and how, like, you know, you you are this way at one stage of your life. And then once you cross the line, you are now with a child. So another clear uh, thematic uh, use of boundaries once again. And what's going on in the scene is that Holling is being immature. He's not acting his age. And he's kind of like cracking up over some of the language being used. Yeah, he's cracking up um, when Joel is describing the act of childbirth. Joel says things like, you know, there might be pain in the rectum or vaginal discharge, loose bowel movements. So like potty humor kind of stuff that Holling is cracking up at. And he's not normally like that. So there's something a little weird going on here. Yeah, you can can totally read that from a mile away. You're like, I bet there's something more going on beneath this man than what's on the surface. And, you know, I think... I think I even remember, I don't know why this image just popped in my head, but I think the first time we see Hauling and Shelly, well, when we when we first start in this scene, I think we first see like Joel or we see like, you know, Joel is like giving this childbirth class and which is cool because I think they did this, uh, he taught, at least not in Sicily, but he did a childbirth class like in the first or second season, uh, which I thought was pretty neat. Um, so he's doing it again. It must be like a yearly thing that he does. So we maybe start with Joel, if I'm remembering correctly, and then we see the class and we're like panning along and then we get to Hauling and Shelly. Um, and then when we do, this is the image that popped in my head. I think Hauling is sort of like wringing his wrist or something. He's like, you know, his hands are doing stuff. Like he seems like a little nervous. And as you can see the scene playing out, as we just described, he's making a bunch of weird jokes about urine and amniotic fluid He's sort of like this class clown, but he's kind of joined across the room by this other young guy who keeps laughing at all of Holling's jokes. And uh, I got to say, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good laugh for at least like what the scene calls for. I, I've always, I always <laughs> liked in each of these scenes when this kid is laughing. <laughs> yeah, I, I have one distinct memory. Uh, one time, I think we were only around like twenty-one years old. Give or take. No, we were definitely older. We were like 23, 24-ish years old. And it was a group of us. And we were at this um, diner. We were just, you know, just eating and stuff. And I remember I tried to like squirt the ketchup bottle into my burger. And it made like, you know, like a fart noise. What like what happens when like the ketchup bottle, it's like a little bit, you know, a little rusty. I remember <laughs> laughing for some, it like caught me off guard. And I was like laughing at my like our, our mutual friend Addy like looked over at, at me and he was like, how old are you? <laughs> I don't know why I always remember that. Cause like, I don't know at that moment, 
I just thought it was really funny that it just made that noise. Yeah, it goes to show you can, you know, you can be 23 years old, you can be 63 years old, however old Holling is, and maybe still find room to laugh at this. But um, but it's obviously a problem that's happening with Holling. As we see later on, it's almost like something he's like maybe unable to control. Um, well, let's continue down the plot line because it'll probably explain it to us as we as we keep going through. Let's see. The next time we see Holling and Shelley... I probably took very little notes, but I think I think it's just Holling and Shelley either back in their room, like in their apartment, or at the brick. And uh, Holling is basically saying that he's like he doesn't really know why he's laughing like this, why he's making these jokes. It's not like him, but he's like apologizing. He's like, I promise it won't happen again. You're totally right, Shelley, for being mad at me. I understand you. Sorry, this it's not going to happen again. Yeah, I think the only notes that I wrote down as well were just visualization notes. Because okay. whenever Holling is discussing with Shelly about this problem, Holling blocks to the left of this uh, bedpole, and Shelly's on the right side of it, and that divides the two. So, again, another visualization of poles, pillars, lines, just objects that serve to separate people. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if... I noticed this before. I'm sure we've seen this set a number of times in this season, but uh, I remember the episode when uh, Shelly, you know, re remodeled their bedroom and it's all pink, uh, which it's still, you know, it's still all pink, but it seems like now there are lots of more like nature paintings. Um, like we see landscapes, we see like deer and stuff. And it's almost like a lot of the, a lot of the square inches of the wall are occupied by nature paintings, but of course they're in, you know, on top of this pink paint or uh, wallpaper. So yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was cool. A nice like sort of fusion of Holling's tastes and Shelley's tastes since they've done that remodel. I don't know if it was, I don't think it was like that when they first did that remodel. I think maybe it's been accumulating more natural and wildlife paintings or maybe that's something new with this episode but hmm. I thought it was interesting yeah. i do remember in one episode it had a lot of glass uh yeah. glass animals i do remember you were uh you had you had noted that yeah their eyes that are changing it subconsciously or they're doing a conscious decision and saying like well i think this week's theme is you know x let's try to arrive at it uh thematically using some decorations and i think that that's a really good observation that you caught on that like they're trying to meld uh shelly's interest with holling's interest right here but unfortunately we can see that kind of go out the wayside in the next scene between them <laughs> because we're returning back to the church where joel's having another session and holling is again cracking jokes paul's kind of laughing along and shelly finally has enough and kicks Holling out of the session. Yeah, thank you, Shelley, for doing that. Because it was, it definitely was becoming more and more disruptive. I think Joel even starts to call him out for it. It's like, can you save the jokes for after class? This this young guy, Phil, is right next to Holling now. So when we first saw the setup of the class, Holling was on one end of the room, and Phil was on the other side. Now this next day at class, they're they're like almost partners, like next to each other. They're connecting somehow here. Hauling is really feeding this Phil character. But yeah, you're right. Shelly thankfully kicks him out of the class, gets Hauling out of there. And I think, uh, yes, yeah, the next scene is she's 
asking Ruthann to be her birthing coach. Yeah, she's asking her to uh, replace Hauling right there. Ruthann is saying, like, I don't think that's a really good idea. I think I lacked, like, some maternal instinct. It's something in which, like, I'm just not going to be super great at this. And it also feels, like, kind of unnatural because I'm not your partner. Hauling is. Yeah, she's reluctant. Ruthann is reluctant, but she's going to go for it. So, and you know, we do see her. I didn't think, I didn't think it would actually happen, but like later there is a class when Ruthann is there with Shelly. So, uh, good on Ruthann for helping, <laughs> helping Shelly out here. Right. And that scene kind of continues with, um, the Ed plotline mixed in, but if we fast forward a little bit, we're going to yeah. still be in the brick and Holling's going to be talking with Dave and saying like, I know what you're thinking. Like, you know, why aren't I joining her for this? But you know, when I was a child, that was something in which we didn't do in mixed company. We separated those two activities by gender. Like, the men just wouldn't do that. Like, my own dad didn't even come to my own birth. So it's, again, another theme of staying within your boundaries. Yeah. Holling says his own father went on a fishing trip during his birth, like you're saying. He wasn't even there for uh, when Holling was born. Um, yeah, Holling thinks it's not it's not the right place for him, but... Thankfully, you know, we're going to we're going to get a little turn throughout this episode. So I think it's the next scene. Oh, actually, yeah. So there's something that's um, that is sort of the catalyst for this change in hauling. He's taking out the trash at the brick and uh, geez, I can't remember her name, but it's Phil's partner. Um, She kind of um, pins down hauling like she goes after him and is very angry with him, uh, basically saying that Holling has left this impression on Phil, her partner, because he's dropped out of the birthing class. Like he's not there anymore. He doesn't show up. And she's trying to talk to Phil about this family that they have to start and being together. And she says something about finding an application letter for the Coast Guard, like suggesting that Phil's just going to like leave her. So yeah, she's really letting Holling have it. Like she's not happy with this, and uh, it hits Holling in the face that he 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 has this power uh, not only with like the what's happening between him and Shelley, but this is also radiating out to the other people in the class that are witnessing this and taking an example from him. Right? She says, "You're a grown man. You're supposed to set a good example," and that rings true because. He doesn't realize it, but he does have power within. It's kind of similar to Ed's plot line. Hmm. And she's saying, like, you got to show that, like, this is a valued sanctimonious ritual and you have to respect that. He needs to help other individuals. He needs to be like a father figure. Exactly. Yeah. And he will be a father. So, yeah, he's got to start practicing this. You know, whatever he does sets an example and has an effect on other people, especially, you know, because he's just like an older role model in a way. But I mean, just as a human being, you got to be cognizant of your surroundings and the people surrounding you. So he takes it upon himself to talk with Phil. Phil is playing pinball in the brick. I didn't pull a soundbite for this. I do remember I wrote down some notes for it. I think it's because there's some music. Oh, the music in the scene I actually really liked. It's by a band called Belly. Never, never heard of this band before. The song is Dusted or Dust or Dusted. Uh, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's de- it's a con- very contemporary song for the time. I think if this episode came out in 93, I remember uh, seeing that the band was like 91, 92 or something. 
Um, but yeah, the whole crux of this, which I think most audience members have probably gathered from the first scene, is that well, Holling says he realized why he's making these jokes. It's because he's like nervous. He says things like, um, you know, we we have our fears about ourselves, our fears that in the midst of this awesome event of childbirth, we might fail. We might lose our nerve. And our women would find out that we're not the men we pretend to be. So the idea is like, you know, Holling is scared, you know, nervous, anxious, just as Shelley might be. They both are as new parents. Um, and his way of coping with this is involuntarily making uh, some jokes about it. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. You're saying that like he's willingly giving in to uh, remaining separated. He's like, I'm going to let the mm. fear control me. That's yeah. going to be the thing that divides me and Shelly right here. And he realizes that now speaking with Paul, he's talking to him, be like, we, we have to remember that we are partners and that we're meant to be together rather than remain separated. And that's what brings him into the final scene. That's what gives him the courage to come back into Joel's birthing session. And he replaces Ruth Ann and finally becomes the father and the husband that Shelley needs. Yeah. And I forgot, did you mention Phil is also, he's returned to the class. So that's oh, yeah, another, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, another, he's back there too. <laughs> so it all worked out. And uh, we learned this little lesson about... Well, I mean, Holling figured out what was going wrong, but I think ultimately figured out like the importance of being there for your partner, but also like not letting fear overtake you in a way, which I think is a large part of Ed's storyline, which I think we can uh, we can reel it back to the beginning of the episode and focus on Ed. As we said, this is a very Ed-centric episode. And um I got to say, you know, I was not a big fan in uh, the premiere episode of this season when we introduced this whole new path for Ed as a healer, as a shaman. Uh, I was like, okay, Ed is a filmmaker. Let's just do that. Like, why are we trying to make him a doctor now? But I got to say, if if that path for Ed is anything like this episode, keep it coming. I, I like the Ed plotline in this episode. Yeah, it's a fun plot line that he's exploring today. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, you know, if, if last week's episode was about him starting the path, this week's episode is about him traveling down the path. And speaking of traveling, that's exactly how the shot begins with Ed, which is their car, mm. Leonard and Ed's car, it's just traveling down this road. And I like that they're having this shot rather than having them be at the home immediately because Leonard makes a point of waking him up at 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. So they have to <laughs> gotta travel. Show and, passage, yeah. Yeah. Got to show that passage of time right there. And they finally arrive at the home, which is where they meet. I forgot that gentleman's name. Do you know his name? Ooh, I think it's Arnie. Yeah. Arnie right there. And you can actually see it right if you pay attention at the beginning scenes, you can see uh, a sign that says like vacuum cleaners here. And there's like a whole host of old fashioned 1950s vacuum cleaner at the front of the house. Yeah. And I think those vacuums do, you know, they are featured throughout the storyline, which is interesting. Uh, you know, it's not just sort of like set dressing. They do come into the story at some point. And I wonder if there's any significance to vacuums uh, going on here. Maybe we can determine that by the end of the, the plot line. But yeah, we come to this character, Arnie, and his daughter, Bonnie, who is played by Kimberly Norris, 
who I didn't recognize at first, but I looked up into her credits. She's done a lot of TV, some movies, but she plays in this movie, Escanaba in the Moonlight. Have you heard of this movie? No. What is that? So it's directed by Jeff Daniels based on a play that he wrote. And it's just such an amazing caricature of this sort of like youper culture and lifestyle. It's basically Jeff Daniels and his family, like the men in his family go on this hunting trip up in a cabin. And uh, it's just like a, it's a, um, it's a tradition that they do every year. And uh, Jeff Daniels' wife in the movie is a native played by uh, Kimberly Norris, and her name is Wolf Moon Dance. And uh, yeah, it's just a wild, fun movie where it's very odd. It's very goofy, almost like a cartoon in a way. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I think I got to make it like it's almost like in rotation. I wouldn't say I watch it every year, but every once in a while I'll pull it out just because it's just a lot of fun to watch. And I don't know. I think I've, I think maybe because of Northern Exposure and having visited like further north as I've gotten older, I just have really romanticized this idea of living further north, like in Canada or, you know, closer <laughs> to the north. I've always uh, had like a kind of like a similar thing to what you're saying, like a fantasy of living like a, in a northern um, suburb. But like obviously <laughs> not in like the wilderness. Mine was like mine was like uh, <laughs> Ohio or Minnesota or uh, Illinois, just like a midwestern town. Because like yeah. I, in my mind, I think that's like a very Americana experience uh, for me. Yeah, but like yeah, that. no Jeff Daniels, great. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, great dude. There's no yeah, great great actor, great director. But yeah, returning back to the scene right here, we're gonna be seeing that there's a problem with body in that. She's getting really nauseated or just um, just having like dysfunctions within her body whenever she hears these black chickadees that are crowing outside her window. And her way of coping with this is using these headphones. Now, I, I kind of missed this. Are they actual headphones or are they just like noise-canceling devices? They appear to me as um, the like the earmuffs that you would wear when you're hunting because the gun is so loud. Mm -hmm. And I used these a lot when I was practicing drums, when I was first practicing drums, you know, earplugs work fine, but I also, I preferred using these like over ear, ear protection uh, that you would buy at like a hunting store. So I think that's what oh, she's wearing there. That's what I thought too. I was like, I don't think that these are like actual headphones right here. Yeah. Uh, both of them would have served the metaphor though. Um, headphones probably would have been a little bit better to fill into the statement <laughs> oh, that Chris okay. was saying. But yeah, it's a pretty uh, obvious metaphor, which is where she is blocking herself out from the rest of the world. She's using these earbuds to deafen her ears where she can't literally hear anyone else right there. Another theme of people being divided right here. Yeah. Whatever's ailing her right now uh, prevents her from experiencing the real world. She's, she's got to separate, um, or you know, at least from these chickadees. I think she says later at night they're not so bad, so she can take the the headphones off at night. But um, before that happens, we learn a little bit more about Bonnie. Uh, well, they all sit down now that now that Leonard and Ed have arrived. They all sit down at the table. Arnie, Bonnie, Leonard, and Ed, and Leonard gives a brief patient history saying like she's always been healthy since she was young. Um, she was a systems engineering student, we learn, but she dropped out. I think she says something to her father like, 
you know, I wouldn't have gotten a good job unless I went to graduate school. So why am I even like going to undergrad? And at this point, Leonard kind of like shoots from the hip and is like, okay, Ed, why don't you give this a shot? Like you've never done this before, but uh, take a look into Bonnie's eyes and maybe something will strike you. Maybe you'll figure out, maybe you'll see something that will help us uh, to figure out what's wrong with her. And um, there's sort of like a gentle pause as they stare into each other's eyes, Bonnie and Ed. Um, she's, you know, we didn't mention this, but the actress is very beautiful. Um, so there's, and they're both young. So there's a connection there. And uh, Ed says, well, her eyes, they're, they're nice. And I think that's the end of the scene, right? Does it, yeah, do they have any response? Or, okay. No, there's no response. I mean, we as an audience are led to believe that like Ed is falling for her. Yeah, there's definitely some energy in between, some charged energy in this uh, stare. Right. And that brings us to the next scene, which is where they're still remaining at the house, Ed and Leonard. It's a pretty long house call right there. And Leonard and Arnie are talking about uh, something very serious. They're talking about politics. They're talking about the SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which I know because it's it has an interesting nickname. Lee, do you know the nickname of the SDI? No. It is derisively called the Star Wars program. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Something done underneath Reagan. What it was was just like it was this old idea that they had that they would like use this missile defense system that would like go in it would be like launched into the air and try to stop other nuclear warheads that would come to, you know, that would come to America. It was ultimately like not great. Like I don't think it worked. <laughs> like, is it like hundreds of miles? Like, you know, the accuracy is hundreds of miles off or something. I'm not <laughs> probably, I'm actually not entirely too sure on what I might be thinking uh, of something else, of it. But, but yeah. Yeah. Essentially it was something in which, um, they said might've escalated the cold war, which is what they're talking about in the scene. Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. they're saying like, Oh no, him doing that's making us lose our identity and all that. But it, I don't, at least in my opinion, I don't think this has like real subtext. I, well, let me take it back. It can, it can have subtext. Just the way I read the scene was that like, they're talking about something very serious and Ed and Bonnie are just having a very innocent conversation in the kitchen. Yeah. We'll get back to, cause it all kind of wraps together in the conclusion of this like sequence. But if we're extending these scenes into sequences, like the next thing that intercuts is, like the same time, it's night now. Ed and Bonnie are in the kitchen. She takes off the uh, the headphones because you know the chickadees aren't so loud at night. Ed compliments her cooking uh, raisins in the brisket. Would have never thought of that, but it tasted really good. He said, and uh, oh yeah, there's just like great chemistry here, or there's like energy here because Ed is like, oh, I'm sorry, we're here so late. Like, um, hope we're not bothering you. And Bonnie is like, oh, you know, I don't mind. Uh, so, you know, she kind of wants him to be there. Perhaps we don't know. And then it gets really weird. Cause Ed, um, nervously, like, uh, he says like he, he thinks he saw someone outside of the window, uh, in the kitchen that they're at. Well, of course, Bonnie's like, yeah, I mean, that's probably just a green man or something. She says it's an old Athabascan thing. She explains, it's like, you know, whenever you lose your keys or something like starts malfunctioning or breaking, like we always blame it on the, on the green man. And I guess kind of like gremlins, which actually Leonard says later, you know, some cultures might call them gremlins. Apparently Ed's clan calls them stickmen. So lots of names for the same idea, perhaps. 
Right. And that's when they sit down and have their dinner. This is where the identity thing kind of comes back mm-hmm. because they're talking about America losing its identity. And then and then Ed kind of parlays it into being like, well, have you seen like this particular movie? Because in that place, you Shane. know, this person's a yeah. Shane, Shane. Yes. Saying like he's a gunman and like he's depriving himself from his identity. So like at the end, he's got to strap on his Colt again and shoot Jack Palance. Yeah. Yeah, gunman who like I guess tries to live a different life and in the end, you know, he can't escape his past. He is a gunman at heart. So he puts the gun back on and shoots down Jack Palance. I've actually never seen Shane. Always wanted to. One of my best friends uh is named Shane after the movie. He was named after the movie. So What? Yeah, I mean, he's seen it. He's like, "Yeah, it's okay. It's no a fine way. movie." But I mean, whatever. <laughs> I'm sure it's I hear it's really good. So I should watch it sometime. Um, but yeah, they they relate this idea of not neglecting, but um, ignoring your identity. And the Cold War, too, I think um, Leonard says, like, without the Cold War, we're disenfranchised in a state of enemy, which I thought was cool. I don't think I've ever heard that word, enemy. It means lack of the usual social or ethical standards in an individual group. So we've kind of lost this identity of our culture in a way, is that's what Leonard is saying. And it all starts to tie in because Ed bursts out, whoa, thinks he just got an idea with what might be going on with Bonnie. You know, we said she's a systems engineer. Maybe that was her true identity. And after she decided to quit going to college, the chickadees are in their way. They're trying to tell her to go back to school. So at the very least, if she thinks of it this way, you know, the chickadees aren't necessarily attacking her. They're trying to support her. But regardless, whatever Ed saying this does for um, Bonnie, it seems to work because she seems to be immediately starting to be relieved at least. Yeah. It's actually like such a crazy idea (laughs) to suggest such a like large drastic career change. Because like she already did one drastic career change, which was dropping out. And Ed's like, wait, no, based on like a hunch. (laughs) You should go back. And like, that's a huge thing. I was like really surprised. I was like, I would never (laughs) have tried to say that, like guide another individual to making such a large, large decision, especially one that I haven't known for very long. (laughs) But like you said, he's very lucky because it paid off. Because in the next scene, we're going to see that Bonnie's going to visit Ed. She's going to repay back the favor by getting him this, uh, fancy new vacuum cleaner that she got she's you know she's saying like oh i can do like all these new things it's like way better than the old one yeah she says like his uh he's got mostly wood floors so uh i forget now but it's like a metal vacuum cleaner so it's a specific type of vacuum cleaner that works better for these uh wood floors apparently and i think it's like i want to believe it's like refurbished to like something that from that collection of vacuum cleaners that they have uh but that's her way of saying thanks She's already sent away for re-enrollment forms at the college and the songs of the chickadees have stopped bothering her. And, uh, you know, you know, they're kind of smiling at each other. There's an awkward pause and she's like, well, I guess I should probably be leaving now. And Ed says, I'll walk you out. We get a wide shot of Ed's apartment, which I don't think we see very often. We may, I know we've seen like the door to Ed's apartment before. We've probably seen a similar angle, but we just don't see it a lot. This is the exterior of Ed's apartment. He does live up, uh, up some stairs there. So they walk down and on the way to her car, she asks him out on a picnic. And uh, 
he does agree, but there is some strange laughter from the bushes. Like there's a cutaway shot, some rustling sounds, and some really creepy laughter. Yeah, we don't see what it is yet. Right. Definitely very creepy right there. <laughs> and and that leads us to the next scene, which is where Ed's having a little bit of confusion in his mind. And he goes to see Joel. Uh, it's one of the few scenes in which Joel's being featured in this episode. It's a good Joel's one. Joel's in his yeah, office. it's a good, uh, well, well, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, um, Joel's just in his office just reading a magazine. He's not really up to anything. And Ed's asking him, saying, like, have you ever, like, fallen in love with a patient before? And Joel's saying, like, uh, no, like, not for me, personally. And Ed says, like, well, what about doctor-patient confidentiality? Because I think something might be happening to me where a patient might be falling in love with me because, you know, I'm kind of brokering in the same field as you. And Joel's kind of laughing, saying, like, you're not a doctor. But Ed kind of insists on the idea. They're like, I, I must be a doctor because there's no conceivable way in which this person would like me. And this idea is going in two separate but parallel directions where one, he's saying like, I don't think that I measure up to be the human being that she thinks that I am a clear disconnect of what Ed thinks he is. And also the idea of doctor patient confidentiality draws a very clear line between doctor and patient. Yeah, doctor-patient relationship, because uh, it's like not necessarily like the that they're confidential to each other. It's like, shoot, are we crossing a line here with the relationship between doctor and patient? And yeah, I gotta say, like I was saying, I, I really like this sort of you know that they can sort of have this talk together. I like seeing Joel and Ed have sort of a heart-to-heart. Ed is coming to Joel for some some advice. Was Kind of surprised that Joel is kind of knocking Ed down in a way. Like, it doesn't seem very characteristic. I mean, the scene doesn't turn into a conflict, really, between them. But when Ed says, what I mean is, like, when Ed says that he's a doctor, Joel's like, uh, come on, you're not a doctor. Like, it's almost kind of rude in the way that he says that to Ed. Because I don't think it's ever been like Joel to um to be judgmental of, like, healers or shaman. Uh, because... If we remember like Uncle Anku, I think he was always like really fascinated by Uncle Anku's practices. And like in the first episode when we see Leonard, I mean, there's definitely like a frustration that Joel gets from time to time with these healers, but he's never like debasing towards them or he's never like, I don't know, putting them down in a way. Um, But that's really just for that one line. And it kind of struck me a little odd when he says, Ed, you're not a doctor. What are you talking about? Well, like, you're right that he's never really actually demonstrated that. But I can see that within his characterization. It make, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, it just seems a little rude. Because I'm also thinking about, you know, like Ed and Joel. They're freaking best friends, man. Like, Ed made Joel a friendship bracelet that one time. Like, they've been through some stuff together. So, I don't know. But it's literally just one line. So, it's maybe me reading into it too much. Um, I do want to also say the way the scene starts, Ed walks in to sit down with Joel and he notices Joel's reading a hematology journal. And uh, Ed says, blood is important. And Joel says, yeah, it helps. Uh, He's like, what what do you need, Ed? What's going on? Um, (laughs) And what else can I say about this scene? Yeah, I think uh, Joel says, ooh, I've got a soundbite, so I'll play that. Maybe that'll give me some idea of what what I'm thinking of. What about the doctor-patient relationship? 
Ed, I mean, there's no moral or ethical problem here. You're a civilian. Restrictions don't apply. The only reason Bonnie likes me is because I've healed her. It's the mystique of our profession. Uh, a word of advice? Please. So what? So I guess there's a couple ways you could read that. Uh, it could be Joel saying that, like, forget this idea of doctor-patient relationship and there should be boundaries. Like, if she likes you, like, take that chance. Like, you don't get this chance. Because Joel says, like, that's never happened to me. So, like, if it's falling into your lap, go for it. Um, but what it could also mean is, like, uh, Ed, like, you're in your head too much about this. You probably, I don't know if Joel can sense this, but, like, maybe he can. Like, Ed, you probably do like this person. You like this chance at getting to know her better. Like, follow your heart with this. Yeah, he's ultimately trying to be comforting toward Ed. He's saying, like, yeah. it doesn't matter. Just try to go, you know, you, you shouldn't be entangled in your own thoughts. Just try to just try to have it out. Yeah. And so he does go on this picnic with Bonnie, but pretty much immediately after they've like laid down the picnic blanket and started unpacking some food, he's like, okay, real fast, Bonnie, I want to talk about us, like up front. Uh, the feelings that you're having for me, they're not real. You're attracted to the shaman, not the man. And um, obviously Bonnie is kind of hurt by this. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't, she feels like this is sort of like them breaking up before they've even gotten together. And uh, at the same time too, she's kind of like, feels like invaded in a way when she says, Ed, you're not inside my head. Don't tell me what I'm thinking. I know that I like you. I have a, I, have, I know better than you what I'm thinking. And I also thought that maybe you had liked me too. Like I got that impression. Yeah, that actually is kind of neat for Bonnie to say, to be like, I am in charge of my own feelings. I don't need someone else to tell me that. So Ed is being very dismissive on that in an attempt to protect her. But like, he's still not really respecting her. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, ultimately that scene ends in a, you know, a very negative way. It goes incredibly south because <laughs> she leaves the scene and it ends with like a really creepy shot. Oh my gosh. Of, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like so creepy. It's the green man in the trees. And it's like a flash. You see him for a moment and then you cut to Ed, his reaction. He's like, what did I just see? Cut back to the trees and nothing's there. So it's like really, uh, it gave me like, I guess you haven't seen this, but like uh, Mulholland Drive, like the the dumpster guy, the guy in the back of the Winkies diner, uh, gave me the vibes of that. It's like a very effective jump scare that happens in that scene. I don't remember that in Mulholland Drive. Have you seen Have you seen Mulholland Drive? Yeah, I saw it with you. Okay, we've watched this together. So there's the scene. Yeah, we saw this with a mutual friend. Yeah. Okay. So there's a scene where they're in like a Winky's diner and uh, it's just these two random guys and he's like, I had a dream about this place. Like, it's very weird. You were standing over by the counter. You were standing right there and you looked at me and I just felt so much dread because there is this man in back of this place. He was the one who was doing it. Sorry, I'm just like directly quoting it. I'm looking at your face. You have no, so you have no recollection. I had a dream about this place. Well, it's the second one I've had. But they're both the same. They start out that I'm in here. But it's not day or night. It's kind of half night, you know? But it looks just like this. <laughs> and I'm scared like I can't tell you. Of all people... 
You're standing right over there. By that counter. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are, and... Then I realize what it is. <laughs> There's a man in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. It is pretty removed from the main plot of the story, though it does like, it does fit into the story of Mulholland Drive. But uh, but yeah, it is like a weird like vignette of sorts in the movie mm. that you could just like, I mean, you could take it out, but it's such a great scene. Like, why would you? It, <laughs> it, it probably represents so much of what's going on in David Lynch's mind with Mulholland Drive. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I'll send you a picture of it later and you can, you can freak out about it. It's pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the next scene, which is going to be Ed at the brick and he's having a drink. I don't think it's an alcoholic drink. I'm pretty sure of that. Oh, I didn't but check. Yeah. I don't think he ever really does, but maybe he, maybe he's really down in this scene and he's going to drink alcohol because he normally drinks, uh, yeah. Grape juice or root beer or something, right? Right. Well, whatever he's drinking, he's having a conversation with Maurice and saying like, hey, have you ever seen that movie, The Champ? You know, I saw like the the recent one, which was like, what, 1989, I want to say, with John Voight? Yeah, he was saying, well, Maurice says like the remake is not as good as the original. So there are right. two versions, yeah. Yeah, and he's asking him about like the decision-making skills that happened in that film. And he's saying like, do you think that this uh, protagonist made the right decision? And in Maurice's mind, he says like, no, because like ultimately, even though he was like the champ, he was a champ of nothing. So like, why would you want to be that? Yeah. This character is like lies to his kid, breaks his kid's heart in order to, I'm guessing to, um, maybe try to make things better for the kid. Like the kid's going to go and live with the mom, but you know, the kid loves his dad or loves the champ and wants to be there. But like he creates this, um, this lie that separates them, that severs the relationship. And Maurice says, well, like, you know, a real champ would have taken action and like fixed his life up and been a better father. So I guess the point that they're trying to drive with this scene here is that, uh, yeah, instead of taking an action, he just severed the relationship. Um, and so with Ed, how could we how can we translate that? He he's inventing these false perceptions in his head of like what Bonnie thinks of him. Um, and he's just going with that and deciding to like nip the relationship in the bud because he's created this false perception in his mind. Yeah, that's a great explanation of the scene. And that really plays into what's chewing inside Ed. Because obviously there's like a whole host of uh, emotions, mostly of self-doubt, that's ruminating underneath the surface. The climax of this is going to be happening in the next scene, which is where Ed is, I don't think it's ever really explained. He's just like just heading walking. down this path. Yeah, he's just walking yeah. around. <laughs> just having a, having a nice little walk down this road. And he hears the rustling again and he looks around and then it turns out that he's being followed by the green man who is a very, very small fellow yeah. dressed in orange and has got like CGI lightning <laughs> coming popping out of his hair. Yeah, He's got like, he's dripping glitter in a lot of 
moments and he's got CGI lightning coming out of his head, uh, sparkling eyes. And I realize this now we're watching the Blu-rays and we talked about sometimes, uh, the quality will just like go away. Like the quality would be really bad for like a single shot. Well, for this, it's like this whole scene. And I think we figured it out in one of the earlier episodes. It's like anytime they do a VFX shot, it looks really bad. And I think I know why now, because they're probably, after they filmed it, the show was shot on film. Uh, they probably did some VFX through video. Uh, so when they applied the VFX, that was done maybe on video. And I don't think they ever printed it back to film. I don't see why they would if they're just going to broadcast this. So there may not exist a, uh, a there may not be a high quality version of this VFX sequence uh, ever. I think it might just exist in standard definition. Um, so that could be why this entire, anytime we see this green man, the whole scene is just like, kind of lower quality oh okay that makes a lot of sense because there it's a little bit jank but i just played it out to be (laughs) like it's from like the 1990s like they were (laughs) they were just learning this technology right here but regardless of how he looks what's important is what he's saying and he's saying that like i'm here to cripple you i represent all of the things that you don't like about yourself i am the manifestation of your doubts I'm going to drag you down to my level. I don't know if that's intentional that he is uh, diminutive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, it could be, like, a little play onto there. But, yeah, he's basically an amalgamation of his fears and doubts, and he's going to be plaguing Ed. Yeah, and he says, like, you called me, Ed. Like, this is, like, I don't want to be here. I got stuff to do. My got, like, a friend coming in from uh, overseas, or I don't know where he says he's from. He's like, I got to go hang out with him. He also mentions in this, because Ed's like, what do you want? And he, that's what he says. Like, this is what I want. I want to incapacitate you with self-doubt. But before he says that, he does say, like, I want, what do he say? Like, I want to live, like, on the lake or something. I want to live on the water. I want fish sticks for dinner. I only, I just wanted to bring that up because later Ed does make fish sticks for dinner. <laughs> um, and he had some peas, right? He had some peas on that plate. Maybe he bought the last... Uh, the last fresh bag of peas. Oh, that's true. From, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's got this little green man chasing him around and he's like, all right, I got to go do some stuff, but I'll catch you later, Ed. And um, Ed does go on to, as I said, later that night, makes some uh, fish sticks in his little apartment. He's actually set the table for two. He's got two plates of fish sticks waiting alone at the dinner table and there's a knock at the door and it's Leonard. It's not the little green man. Sorry. I keep saying little green man because, uh, I don't think they ever say little green man in this episode. They always say green man, right? Right. Hmm. Well, I always, I think you're right. I'm saying little green man. Cause that's like a rule in a drinking game. Do you know this? Do you know this rule? Wait, what? So there's this, no, there's, what? This, there's a drinking game and there's a rule where like every time you take a drink, Okay, the rule is there's a little green man that sits on the rim of your glass. And every time you take a drink, you have to take him- Like a toy soldier? Um, No, 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 he's imaginary. So there's a imaginary little green man that sits on the rim of your glass. Every time you take a drink, you have to remember to take him off your glass, drink it, and then you have to put him back on the glass. And if you forget to do that, you have to drink again. So that's like another rule for this drinking game is the little green man. That's why I keep saying little green man. I mean, he is little in this episode, but- but yeah, I don't know if they ever call him Little Green Man. Oh, that that is some uh, 
That's some college nonsense right there. <laughs> definitely, yeah. Definitely, definitely some nonsense going on there. Um, but this is a really impressive monologue from Leonard here, at least the writing. I feel like, so I texted you this before we did our episode today, Charles. I was saying this is probably the best episode of the season so far. I don't know if that's true, but I was definitely really getting into it when I was watching it today. And uh, I think it's because, you know, we don't really have as many like powerful monologues, uh, at least up to the same caliber. You'll, You'll get like a couple lines that are really really, I don't know, thought provoking, but this is kind of one of the first like extended monologues that we've seen in this season that just really is like firing on all cylinders in the writing. I guess, um, Chris has that monologue about, uh, washing your clothes in the laundromat versus at home. And that's pretty interesting, but this is just a pretty, pretty extended and powerful scene where Leonard you know, uh, he, he walks into Ed's apartment and he's like, well, you're expecting company. And Ed explains the concept of the green man. And Leonard is like, of course, this all makes sense. It's your low self-esteem. So let me play the soundbite uh, that I've been building up to of this uh, <laughs> incredible monologue, as I say. Now it all makes sense. It does. Ed, have you ever heard of low self-esteem? That's what the green man is. I know they've entered our mythology as something akin to gremlins, but they're really a manifestation of poor self-image, a sense of uh, inadequacy. I'm not sure I follow you, Leonard. You have a terrible self-image. That's why you said those absurd, stupid things to Bonnie. They have no relation to objective reality. You're an eminently lovable person, Ed. The truth is, you created this green man. He's the embodiment of your own self-loathing. i tell you something. Ed, this is your demon. My demon? Everyone who's chosen to be a shaman has a demon to fight, and yours is the worst of all. Low self-esteem is the root cause of practically all the pain and misery in the world. It's what drives war and torture and genocide. It's what evil is. You think Hitler liked himself? Or Cortez? We hate others because we hate ourselves. You can't be a healer, Ed, as long as the green man owns you. How do I get rid of him, Leonard? I'm afraid you can't. Not entirely. But you can keep him at bay. And there's only one way to do that. It's actually put very well in the Christian gospel. John 1. Love casts out fear. You have to learn to love yourself. Good night, Ed. Yeah, such an epic just string of thoughts and ideas and everything that he says. I think it's also his voice, as you can hear, super powerful. It's got a lot of authority to it and some tenderness as well. Yeah, fear is the mind killer in a way is what he's saying. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's definitely a very universal, very powerful message. What I like particularly about uh, his monologue is that he has the little detail of saying, like, anyone who wants to become a shaman is going to become plagued by some sort of uh, demon. And I think you can replace the word shaman with the word of, like, anybody who wants to become anything is plagued by a demon. I think he said the word shaman just because Ed is, um, you know, trying to traverse his path. But I think that in a broader way, He's saying that like whenever you try to go down a path, once you've decided upon it, 
you're going to be always comparing yourself to others and you're going to be imagining what perceived success is and you're going to measure it against yourself and you're always going to come up short, particularly if you're just starting out, if you're an artist or whatever. And that is like the ultimate divide in this episode. I've gone on and on about this Mm -hmm. on the other plot lines and how like other individuals were separated from themselves. But the number one thing that can separate us is ourselves. So Ed is not measuring up to what he can truly be. He's setting himself to be below of what his baseline is, creating a separation, a, a distinction between an Ed that values himself and loves himself and an Ed that believes that he is worthy of um, terrible treatment. Uh, mm-hmm. That reminds me of like a Groucho Marx quote <laughs> or about clubs where he says, oh, like, yeah. I don't want to belong to any club that would accept me as one of its members. And that's like, in my mind, I think that's like a huge, I'm trying not to be too harsh here, but that's like, that's like kind of a huge red flag. If someone self prescribes that to themselves, Mm. because that's immediately telling you just like, Oh, this individual is just like, he has like a self-destructive, very cynical, very negative way of viewing themselves in the mirror. And you can already tell this, this is going to be like trouble down the road. And that's essentially what Ed is subscribing to in this episode and what Leonard's trying to explain to him is like the only way to break out of this cycle is that it starts with you. It, no one else can save you except yourself. And the beginning stages of that is loving yourself. Yeah. Very well put. And, and yeah, he does say, I think it's really cool that he says, I'm afraid you can't get rid of the green man. Cause Ed says like, well, what do I do? How am I going to stop this? Like you don't ever get rid of it. And this reminded me of a quote from this book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. This was a book that I was assigned to read in, in a screenwriting class. It's about screenwriting, but really about like overcoming your own um, roadblocks and writer's block in any, in any form of art. But I think it was specifically for the screenwriting class. But uh, this quote has always stuck with me. The amateur believes he must first overcome his fear, then he can do his work. The professional knows that fear can never be overcome. He knows there is no such thing as a fearless warrior or a dread-free artist. So yeah, the idea that there's no overcoming this, you have to sort of live with it and manage it. And I guess like, you know, you you may be, one day you may be the master, but the next day it's never going away. It can always creep back up. Yeah, definitely. It's like an imposter syndrome uh, a little bit in that way. And it's also just like, I don't know, like I feel like uh, me and you both probably, like anyone else that creates anything, can feel that way where like some days you believe like the art that you create is, it's good. It goes (laughs) above and beyond the expectations of what you thought and you're like, oh, I thought I did really well on that. But then like other days you examine it, you reevaluate it and you think it's subpar. (laughs) That yeah. happens to me a lot on my writing. When I look at it, I'm like, this is not like good writing right here. <laughs> but I think it's like, it's just something you have to juggle with. And you have to realize that like when you grow, your tastes are going to grow and your skills are going to grow. And you have to realize that like, it's all a building block. It's all a process. Yeah. You would have maybe done it differently or like even differently now, but you, you have to just accept it and try to, and try to realize that like, there's no wasted effort everything builds to something else. And like this low self-esteem that we all suffer from 
you have to look at it from a different perspective. It's not going away. So, yeah, just like like we like we've been talking about. This is a universal theme. Like I feel I feel like everyone <laughs> can relate to this. Yeah. And Leonard's just really nailing it. Really nailing it and not letting go. Like he goes on for so long. Uh, quoting the Bible, which is pretty awesome too. Love casts out fear. I also like that he says, you're an eminently lovable person, Ed. Like he's like, come on, man. Everyone, everyone loves Ed. We all like anyone who watches this show. I think Ed might be uh, probably their favorite character in most cases. I also want to point out, sorry, I'm kind of a stickler on this now that I've just kind of been more aware of um, more cruel language that I've I think I'm just inventing this in my head, but it could be a thing that's happening in the fifth season, whether it's David Chase's influence on the show or just that there is like disagreement between like Diane Frolov and the writing room and like everyone's kind of stressed about the show, like the show owners have left. And it's just a whole different vibe maybe that somehow translates through the script. But um, what is it? Leonard says of Ed, he's like, okay, now I understand why you said such absurd, stupid things. And just like, I'm not saying it's the way that the actor says it. I just think that word stupid has such a, such a connotation to it. But um, yeah, sorry. I'm kind of a stickler about that. But I think, I think the <laughs> no. writing is getting a little crueler in some situations. No, obviously language plays one of the largest, if not the largest role in really anything that we do, um, both in real and fictional worlds. And I think that you're right that the word stupid is a very harsh word that even when used in a self-deprecating way, how am I trying to describe this? I'm, I'm just trying to say that like... It's like a negative. It is an it unusual... Yeah. yeah. It's an unusual word to be used in the setting of Northern Exposure yeah. if it's not coming out of the mouth of like Joel Fleischman or something like that. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, I guess if you redid the scene, you would say like, useless? Maybe like... Um, I think just absurd works, you Absurd, know, yeah, like without, without adding on stupid. I just, I want to believe that like, I'm sensing something that's like coming through in the writing, some like anxieties that Diane Frelov and Andrew Schneider are feeling and some uncomfortableness, frustrations that are, they're casting out through their writing. But we've covered this amazing scene, this amazing monologue. The conclusion is Ed is walking down a dirt road with a bouquet of flowers and the green man catches up to him. I think it's really cool. He's now dressing like Ed, like he's got the same undershirt and the same uh, leather jacket as Ed, though he still has his green man costume, which was sort of like, uh, what do you call that? It's like frilly. I, I don't know. I don't know how you describe that leather, but he's also dressing like Ed now. And he's like, uh, well, the idea is that Ed is about to go talk to Bonnie and the green man is trying to talk him out of it. Yeah, uh, he's obviously going off of self-preservation because Ed is the one that wills him into existence. So he's trying to say like, wait, no, 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 no. Like, think about me. What's going to happen to me? Like, I'm going to disappear if you take this next step forward. And of course, Ed is now a fully realized being. He now knows that like, oh, I shouldn't have this control me. So he knocks on the door of Bonnie's place and Bonnie answers the door and Ed turns around and sees that the green man has now disappeared. And nice. he says yeah. like, yeah, he's like, oh, Bonnie, I got something to tell you. I want to explain my behavior to you. And then the camera kind of swings around and we see the front door of her place. And it's now surrounded by the vacuum cleaners that we saw at the beginning scene of the episode. Oh, yeah. 
Do we have any idea of what that might signify now? I'm trying to think. Well, the obvious one is that like vacuum cleaners clean up things. Yeah. So Ed is just quote unquote cleaned up his uh self image. He's cleaning like up sucked his away. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's I mean, I guess. Yeah, it's an easy image there. Um, if you're listening to this and you've got an idea, go ahead and write in to northern overexposure podcast at gmail.com. Uh I feel like I, every once in a while we get comments when people are like, this podcast is the one that I like talk to the most. I'm always like talking to you guys while I'm listening to the podcast, which to me, I don't know if that's a compliment <laughs> or not. Like, I feel like they must yeah, be no, like, it feels trying like, to oh, correct us. So right, if you have a correction us. or a thought, please write to us and let us know. Uh, we always enjoy hearing what other people think. And also like, I feel like Charles, we've said this before, but I get so much enrichment hearing what you've learned from the episode because you always have things that I, you always bring things to the table that I never think of. So anything else that you can bring to the table, if you're listening to the podcast and think you have an idea, write into us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, it seems to work out. The green man is gone. Bonnie gets the flowers and Ed says, there's something I'd like to explain to you. And he goes inside her house. I can't remember like the very final image, but I do remember thinking like, what did, how cool would it have been if it just ended when Ed said, Bonnie, there's something I'd like to explain to you. And then it like kind of cuts there. I think that's a little too, uh, too much of like an, like an art house hip move for, uh, for uh, primetime TV, <laughs> but you know, they always like to end on the wide shot. Yeah. Anyway, so. They always like to end in like a very like neutral is not the word I'm looking for. It's more like, I guess like universal, just something which like everyone can agree on. Like it, it's not like heavily stylized, like you just described. Uh, but it also has like meaning because like it ends on on the vacuum cleaners. Cause like we, yeah, we yeah. can guess that like the vacuum cleaners mean something, but like yours is like, that's like a, how a movie ends. That's like yeah. <laughs> super distinct, <laughs> which I yeah. like. I, I do like that idea. Yeah. A very, a very sharp cut ending there for a movie. But, um, but yeah, glad we got a little Ed centric episode here. Yeah. Like I said, I think, uh, knock on wood, I can't remember how exactly this shaman trajectory goes for Ed, but if it's like this, I kind of, I kind of liked this, uh, entry into Ed's character. Okay, Charles, now is the point in our podcast where we like to bring on a guest, someone who has never seen Northern Exposure before and get sort of an outsider's opinion on the episode, maybe the series in general, though it's very fish out of water because, as I said, this person has never seen Northern Exposure before. And today we have, uh, through our Zoom call, we're all joined together with our guest, MJ. MJ is... Uh, a filmmaker, a comedian, just an all-around old friend, you know, from film school. Uh, Charles, actually, I don't know if you've ever met MJ. I don't, I don't think you guys have met before, but we've probably nearly met each other before. But mm. um, <laughs> MJ, are you uh, there on the line? I'm here. What's up? Uh, so thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, so is, is, is it true you've never seen Northern Exposure before? Never seen Northern Exposure, wasn't familiar with the cast, so I was pleasantly surprised to see Aiden from Sex and the City involved. Is that <laughs> the uh, the the guy with the bandana in the laundromat? Yes. yes. Chris Stevens, uh, also my big fat Greek wedding fame. And right. Also, what was the, 
Charles, we already talked about this, but what was the like Chili's commercial or something? Yeah, it's either uh, Chili's or Applebee's. <laughs> he one does of those, the voice uh, chain acting, restaurants. Yeah, for all this. Yeah, it's, it's in like That's a series right. of ads. <laughs> and he's he's also the dad into all the boys I've ever loved before. Is that a movie or a series? Yeah, it's it's a movie. They made I think they made three of them on Netflix. Oh. I want to say they're based on books. Is this recent or? This is recent. Like, like in the movie, he Whoa. has like a college age daughter or she starts in high school, but she's in college by the third one. I think I haven't seen them. All right. Maybe. I saw the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is a future Patreon. I don't know. I got to that's I'm always interested in his uh, in his acting career. But yeah, so this episode, Heal Thyself, um, we've we kind of like we normally split it off into three plot lines, but I think the major story of this episode deals with Ed and the green man. And um, yeah, I don't know. What were your thoughts on, on Ed as a character? Do you like Ed? The story of his green man? What do you think? I, I like Ed and I liked the story of his green man because I thought that was a wonderful analogy for, you know, self-esteem. And I, th- I thought a little bit with it being, is it before or after Twin Peaks? It's kind of running concurrently, though. Let's see. This is 93. I forget when Twin Peaks was canceled. I imagine that Northern Exposure ran past Twin Peaks. But um, but yeah, they're yeah, kind of around I the just, same time. I, I thought it was interesting that they sort of have this, this otherworldly creature that happens to be a little person. It felt a little bit borrowed yeah. from Twin Peaks. <laughs> the, uh, the like backwards speaking man. Yeah, Peaks. exactly. Have you seen Mulholland Drive? Yes. We talked about this earlier in this episode, but the the weird like creepy man out behind the diner. Right. I definitely got that vibe whenever you first see the green man in this episode. It's like a flash of just seeing him in the bushes. Pretty creepy. My, my favorite inclusion of the green man was when he shows up later and he's wearing a leather jacket. <laughs> like he looks like Ed. He has the same. Yeah, costume. that he's like, I'm you, man. <laughs> Uh, what else? What was, um, what other things did you like in the episode or what did you not like? Was anything confusing to you in this episode? I didn't find it confusing. I actually felt it was very easy to jump in. Like I, I felt like they acclimate you with the characters and their relationships to each other fairly quickly with the exception of the, uh, pregnant woman and her husband. I did not understand that they were husband and wife until they showed them in the bedroom together and i was very confused by the age difference yeah and <laughs> level of attractiveness difference like she's like a 10 <laughs> and, he's an and old she's man. with this old man who looks like somebody's uncle i found that a little confusing but everyone else's relationships seem to make sense to me <laughs> yeah we're gonna have to compile that with uh one day with like the list of guests that we've got and all of them are surprised they're like yeah i thought it was like uh his daughter and i was like that's an adorable relationship but then he like put his tongue down her mouth <laughs> oh my God. and i just like is that is that like par for the course for like family man like families in there but yeah no you're that definitely happens all the time you're you're definitely with company. everyone else yeah that's like it's a thing from the first episode of northern exposure and the show you know for being in a show in the 90s is one of the more progressive shows on tv at the time and i think they're trying to like to say something about 
age gaps in relationships, but I don't necessarily think, I think most, I think like 90% of the time, it's always weird. Every once in a while, they kind of handle it with some love and care and grace, but it's actually, they usually just play it for jokes. So I don't think they're actually doing any favors to that idea. Is it not a thing? Their age gap? Is it brought up? Oh yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Oh, no, no. Okay, all the time. Yeah, and they make joke. They make light of it. They make jokes out of it rather than trying to say something. Uh, I don't. Well, I don't know what you could say about that. It's kind of. It's kind of creepy overall, just the way it's presented. But I don't know. I don't know. They're, they're great characters, and they do love each other. So we get some good moments every once in a while. And yeah. As, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, like, yeah, Northern Exposure kind of brokers in that type of uh, environment where they're trying to be forward thinking and progressive on a lot of avenues and this was also one of the avenues that they opened up some of them aged very well some of them aged uh you know adequately right there and i was gonna say like you can even see that in today's episode where um chris was having that monologue with maggie when she's uh installing their washing machine and dryer and chris is having that conversation that was like you know like obviously now in 2021 almost 2022 we can blatantly see that it's like directed towards you know smartphones and technology and all that (laughs) so they were trying to like they were trying to be ahead of their time on purpose and he nailed it i was like that really is true like i'm sitting here with my fiber optics blissing out ordering food to get (laughs) delivered to my door i mean one of the first (laughs) one of the first things i look for when i'm looking i'm moving into a new house on january 1st and one of the my number one criteria deal breaker is i gotta have a washer and dryer yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm missing out on the communal watering hole experience, I guess. Do you have any experience with laundromats? Yes, I have. I've previously lived in several houses and apartments that didn't. I lived in an Airstream in Austin and I had to drive like a pretty fair distance to get to the laundromat. Mm. Um, and they were always so nice to me there. <laughs> Real sweethearts. Yeah, I guess there's always, there's that positive aspect that they're trying to, uh, that's the whole, I think that's what the episode's trying to underline, the sense of community, being together uh, when you're doing your laundry. But also, I mean, like, some laundries suck. Like, in this episode specifically, the, the laundry that they are trying to make, they're trying to paint as uh, a communal watering hole or whatever, also destroys Maggie's clothes and has like green moss growing in it. It's just terrible. Very true. I also, you know, when you brought up like how like progressive the show can be to me, one thing that stood out as someone who's never watched it and wasn't familiar with it at all is like the inclusion of so many indigenous people. And I thought that that was something I was surprised to see in a show that was from the nineties, I assume. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was just surprised to see that on a show that was on network television for it to have such a predominantly indigenous cast. Yeah, it really is such a large, like, part of the flavor of Northern Exposure for me. Like, if I ever was trying to explain it to somebody, I would always include, like, this spiritual, mystical, native sort of uh, vibe to it. And at times that can sort of be played for just, like, oh, this, like, native wise man. Like, they're always... um, depicted as just being like wise in a way, but, um, but also, I mean, just the inclusion of seeing these characters. And in this storyline, we had not only Ed, uh, who's, I don't, I don't think the actor is actually a native, but we have Leonard, who's obviously a native and, uh, Bonnie, who is a native and her father, Arnie, I'm assuming is a native, but like, you know, you get a lot of representation, Marilyn, obviously the, uh, 
the the big round lady is <laughs> that's how you describe her i was gonna say joel's well, i was gonna say joel's uh joel's like receptionist at the doctor's office but i don't think we see her in that role in this uh episode so MJ oh that's true yeah. i was about to say she definitely has that vibe of receptionist okay. at the doctor's <laughs> office but no it's funny that you mentioned ed because as you were saying that i was just thinking i hadn't really clocked i i sort of like just registered him as a white man yeah and i i thought it was interesting that like he's a white man living in alaska that's learning to be a shaman and he's being taught by an indigenous person and i thought that that was that felt right you know and it felt it was cool to me that it's like oh it's cool that like he can include him in this and teach him this and it doesn't matter that he's white and it's great that the white guy's learning it from someone who actually like is indigenous and this is their culture you know like i thought that was interesting yeah well I think the character, I mean, again, the actor probably not native, but the character, I think he's uh, canonically like he's perhaps half white because he's an orphan and they don't know his parents. But uh, the story is like his dad was an Indian and his mom was a white woman. Interesting. So like during the episode, uh, like I think the first time they go into Bonnie's house and I think the last shot of the episode, it frequently features a lot of vacuum cleaners. Uh, they're selling them right. out right outside the door. They're trying to fix them up. Why do you think they end with the shot of the vacuum cleaners? Like, do you think they have any like symbolic meaning behind them? Do you think they just make for a pretty bookend? Like, what do you think? That's that's a good question. And I I I clocked it, but I hadn't reflected on it. I was like, you know, that's so. I, whenever she brought him the vacuum cleaner, I hadn't noticed. That there was a bunch of vacuum cleaners at their house. So I was like, why the hell is she bringing him a vacuum cleaner? And it looks used. I'm so confused. This is a gift. And then when they showed the vacuum cleaners at the end, I was like, oh, okay. So they have a lot of them. It's no big deal. Just giving you a spare vacuum cleaner that we have lying around <laughs> out of the kindness of my heart because we have plenty. And haven't really, if I had to make a projection onto it, what the vacuum cleaners would be about. Um, hmm. Yeah. During our recording of the episode, we were the same way. We didn't, yeah, we didn't have it. Like we recognized it, but we didn't like have an idea until we, we formed our, well, go ahead. Tell, tell us what, tell us what you think. Yeah. I mean, what I was going to say was maybe it's something about like intake, like what you, what you take in from the world and hold on to. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a cleanliness aspect to it mm-hmm. as well. So it's like maybe she's giving him a vacuum cleaner as a way of saying like, hey, here's here's a here's a way to improve your life. <laughs> he says he, he says I only had a broom. So yeah. it's it's sort of a, a gift of, of self-improvement to give someone a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, it's really funny you bring that up because you were saying that, like, you didn't realize they had like a lot of spare vacuum cleaners. So Without that as the context, that's like a very passive aggressive gift to be like, here's a vacuum oh, yeah. cleaner. You live in squalor. Go clean your uh, clean your room. Like my mother gave my partner um a little container of uh like nail clippers <laughs> in a in his stocking, and she made it a, a point to tell me like it's not a comment on his nails or anything. I just thought it was a nice gift. Man, <laughs> it was like I don't think he would have thought that, but thanks for clarifying. I always used to get, not, I guess not always, but I remember multiple years, 
I would get like those like grooming kits for Hanukkah. I don't that was like a thing my parents would give me and my brother. Like grooming your your what? Your face. Like nails and oh, also like whole, razors, just right. all sorts of things. And and like I feel like we almost got them like back to back one year and it's like I already I mean I got the grooming kit. Do I need a second one? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't need a new one. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, cool. I think we've recorded for a bit, so I can segue us out of here. Unless, do you have anything else you'd like to say, MJ? Um, I did, I did think, okay, one thing is that conversation that Ed had with the doctor about women yeah. coming on to doctors. Yeah, tell, tell us about I this. I thought was very, just the way that the doctor was talking about how, like... <laughs> In all these situations where he's been a doctor with ballerinas and some hot lady coming into the ER and how nobody's hit on him, but he's not, he, the, the tone of voice was like, he wasn't saying it like, yeah, man, this happens to me all the time. Nobody hits on me. Like it wasn't light. It was heavy. <laughs> like he was like, this is my great pain. <laughs> this is yeah. my suffering as a as a doctor is that I treated all these ballerinas and not one. He gets really not introspective one, and like is trying to figure out like what is wrong with me as a person that what? these people is it me? don't want me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they like if they wrote that as a comedy, they would definitely follow it up with like uh, it's like, uh, what about that uh, patient that like died in your arms like last week? It's like, no, nah, that's not, that's not important. I just, I just only think about those ballerinas. <laughs> I can only think about this. Moment. Yeah. Wow. It definitely, it, the scene like felt like a comedy that they were playing as a drama mm -hmm. and like the, with the doctor specifically, because I was just like, there's no reason for you to be this forlorn. Yeah, so hung up on this. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Uh, do you know who the main character is in Northern Exposure? If I had to guess, I would say Ed. Yeah, this episode is, is the like is an Ed centric one. Uh, but the main yeah. character, who's not heavily featured in this episode, but I mean, he's 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 around in it is is the doctor. He's a transplant. Interesting. Yeah, transplant from New York and big city guy in a small town. But at this point, we're in the fifth season and. One of the one of the more characteristic things about this show is that it really does become, uh, I guess you could say, like character driven or very ensemble cast. In that we can have episodes that are entirely without Joel, the Doctor, and they maybe focus on all the other townsfolk. And for instance, this episode it seems to focus mostly on Ed. So yeah, it's kind of hard to pinpoint it at this point, but he is, I guess, still the the like lead of the show mm -hmm. interesting yeah i did i did not i wouldn't have caught that from that specific episode yeah this makes me want to start a podcast where i do this with boy meets world <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because i just want to like talk to people about the characters of boy meets world and see what they think of them like with no context but how many people have never seen it you know i was gonna say i mean i have definitely seen plenty of boy meets world but i haven't seen all of it it is somewhat of a blind spot for me. I mean, I've definitely seen it on TV and I've seen some few episodes, but whatever the opposite of a blind spot is, like I'm <laughs> yeah. I'm saturated. You got the you got the spotlight. <laughs> You've got your spotlight yeah. on Boy Meets World. Spotlight on Boy Meets World. That's my Instagram name is Po Boy Meets World. Po Boy Meets so. World. Follow MJ on all the socials. Yes. Very nice. Well, cool. MJ, thank you so much for joining us, taking the time thank to you. watch the episode. Oh yeah, of course. 
And uh, we'll definitely have to get you back on again sometime. Maybe we'll Love have to, to spin this uh, Boy Meets World into a podcast. That could be something. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> I wanted to have a podcast called Boy Meets Golden Girls. Wow. Where mm. I talk about an episode of Boy Meets World and someone else who is an expert on Golden Girls talks about an episode of Golden Girls. And we like explain it to each other. Nice. I wonder how much, I wonder if it would like, how you know, would you program it like there's a specific Boy Meets World episode that lines up really well with another Golden Girls episode? Yeah, maybe we'd, we'd, we'd set like a theme. Yeah. You know, and be like, let's, let's find an episode about discrimination. Yeah. And we'll both explain how they tackled that topic. All right. Yeah. Mm. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Let's, well, no one steal that. This is copyright. Yeah, nobody <laughs> steal it. Um, all right. Well, cool. Thanks, MJ, for joining us. Thank you so much. Let's see. Next week, Charles, we're going to be talking about, uh, oh, actually, sorry. We're taking a short break because we usually take a break after every eight episodes. So I guess we'll take a break at the new year here, 2022, Charles. Uh, I'll see you next year, but um, hey, it's Lee. This part was recorded on December 30th of 2021, which is why I keep making the see you next year jokes. Of course, if you're listening to this podcast when it came out, it's January of 2022. So don't worry. It's not like we aren't coming back until 2023. I just forgot that this episode wasn't going to be released until after 2021 had finished. Anyway, enough of the confusing year timeline. We're taking a short break, but we will return again soon. It'll be the next episode that we do talk about when we return is going to be the ninth episode of season five. It's called A Cup of Joe. Do you have any guesses, Charles, for what might happen in that episode? Oh, God. Okay, well, obviously, there's a allusion to coffee right there. I'm going to go a step further and say, like, maybe Sicily develops a bookstore that has a coffee shop within it, and, like, there's some sort of conflict with this new bookstore. It, like, juxtaposes against the feeling of the town. That sounds like a very sitcomish idea, but like we are in season five and they're starting to, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, recycle some ideas. So yeah, somewhere along that ballpark, I'm gonna go with that. Okay, yeah. So like a new coffee shop, bookstore, something new that's wreaking havoc. Honestly, I can't, I can't tell you what this title means for this episode. We'll have to, we'll have to watch the episode. So, um, Charles, I'll, uh, I'll see you in the new year. All right, I'll see you in the new year. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to MJ for being our guest analyst. If you like the write-in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.